the whole vision of a yoke. We don't see that much anymore. Maybe if you're driving in Amish country, you may see a team of, of uh, you know, two draft horses pulling something, but we don't see that much anymore. It's, it's now John Deere and tractors and all that stuff. But, you know, that was a very uh, vivid image during the first century. And so we're going to do that. I've spared no expense to make a, uh, you know, perfect first century replica of a yoke. So team number one, will you make your way up here, please? Joey and Ethan, thank you. All right, here we go. A perfect first century yoke. Now, maybe a... Uh, get your hand in there, buddy. Okay. Oh, yeah. Ethan, come on over here, buddy. Oh, yeah. Okay, now you might want to put on the... Hold it there. Okay. Yeah, look at this team. They're good looking, aren't they? All right, and Joey's got his cowboy boots on and everything, man. He is ready. He is ready. So this is my team here. Joey, I'm going to have you move your arm inside here for a second, just so you don't get caught on the rope. There you go, buddy. All right. This is my team. We're going to see how straight they can pull. All right? Yeah, team, go! Pull! I know the pastor ain't too much to hold. Oh, there we go. Yeah! Yummy! Keep going! All right, good job. Okay, you guys, slowly back, go backward, because we don't want to whack Mike Emmonson in the head and go into concussion protocol here anytime soon. Good work. Let's give team number one a big hand. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Okay, now team number two. Phil and Drew. Oh, yeah. We've upgraded. These are veterans right here. So, All right. Now we're going to see. I know, right? We're going to see if team number two, let me get my reins here. Can pull together and pull straight. Yamio! Wait, wait, wait. What's going on here? No! Hey! Hey! Wait! We're having a problem here under the yoke. What is the problem? Okay, let's stop before someone gets injured and we need to call 911. <laughs> Thank you, gentlemen. Appreciate it. I think you saw the living point. Here's a truth. That one person or one animal or what have you can only pull so much. A draft horse itself can only pull about 8,000 pounds, right? You put another draft horse with it, they can pull 24,000 pounds. So oftentimes we can pull more with somebody with us than just ourselves. But here's the problem. What happens if the one pulling with us is going in a different direction? And that's what I was trying to illustrate with Drew and Phil. 
And that's what the Apostle Paul is trying to tell us here. If you have your Bibles, you might want to crack them open to chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians. When you're hitched and connected to someone who's going in a different direction, the result can be stress, strain, harm. It's hard to get where you want to go. Right now, we just came out of a, a section in chapter 6 earlier where Paul's basically saying, I'm doing whatever it takes to spread the gospel. Man, I, I'm, I'm paying the price. Because I want you to know that this is the only way to life. And I'm trying to live it out in front of you. Especially in light of some false teachers. But Paul also realizes where the Corinthians live. Corinth is a metropolitan, worldly place where all, sort, all sorts of um, you know, sensuous stuff is going on. And he does not want these believers to be pulled back into that. It's, it's real easy, because it's around you. I mean, Corinth has had, you know, today's um, society had nothing over what was going on in Corinth. And if you get linked to somebody who's going in a different direction, it'll be a struggle. And you find yourselves either pulling and being at war, or eventually somebody just gives up and says, okay, I'll just get pulled along. The influences of the world are strong enough. Why do we want to purposely connect ourselves with somebody who's going to be pulling us in the wrong direction as well? So let me pray for us, and we'll kind of get into the practical discernment of saying, you know, who am I hitching my wagon to, if you will, in my life? So let me pray, and then we'll dig in here to God's Word. Lord Jesus, um, I thank you for this Word that you've given us. It's for our good. I also know that a lot of us find ourselves connected with some people that are maybe heading in a different direction. So give us grace, give us discernment, Give us wisdom and give us obedience to who you are and help us to respond to you in spirit and in truth. And it's in your name I want to pray these things. Amen. Now out of the gate, I just want to say this. I know one of the obvious applications of this passage is who you marry. It's who you marry. And I know that some in this room have married people who are not believers. And I'm not here to condemn. I'm not here to say, shame on you. That ship has already sailed, and the Scripture commands you to actually, if that person agrees to live with you, to stay married in that situation. And give God room to work. Because He can work. But I'm going to tell you right now, it is a poor strategy for evangelism. Okay? Don't marry someone so that they will come to faith. On the other hand, that is not the only application. There are other applications of those who are business partners with you. They will affect how you do business when you're partnering with them, if they're going in a different direction. Those who you're employed with, your fellow employees, how do they affect you and how they do their practices. Friendships. Friendships, people that you're hanging out with and, you know, do you have fellowship? And, and they say, hey, let's do this. And you say, no, let's do this. There can be a conflict there. Hobbies, social clubs, associations, all, all those things. But here's the foundation of what Paul, I think, is trying to get to, and he doesn't articulate it. 
but our Lord Jesus does. Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment in all the scriptures? And this is how he responds in Matthew 22, verse 37. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your mind. Basically, with everything you have, all that you are. And here's the question. Will partnership with an unbeliever help me to love the Lord more, or will it draw me away? That is a a legitimate question you need to ask yourself in the big picture. And this is what Paul has in mind. And as he follows up the first statement of not being yoked with unbelievers, he asks, he kind of gives five illustrations of incompatibility. Continue on in verse 14. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? Or what harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? So these five questions really lead to some deeper questions about who we find ourselves entering into binding relationships with. And here's the first question I think that comes to mind. is Who is in charge? Who is in charge? Who are we going to follow? It says in verse 14, the beginning, what do righteousness and wickedness, literally what do, what do righteousness and lawlessness have in common? Earlier in chapter 5, in putting our faith in Christ, we are saying, His love compels me to follow Him and to make Him known. To live for Him and not myself in verse 15. And that I am a new creation in Christ. I'm not living that old life, verse 17. And that He is my righteousness. He is my righteousness. In contrast, the one who is lawless has chosen to be a law unto themselves. The one who is lawless has chosen to be a law under to, to themselves. They are not under the gentle yoke of Jesus in his righteousness, but they act, they live, they behave, they act on their desires, which where they're calling the shots. They are in charge. And view submission to Christ as bondage. It is the idolatry of self-rule. I'm my own God. I'm in charge. Does it not ring true to the commentary at the end of the book of Judges? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That is our society right now. Whatever I think is right. Truth is subjective. Right? But how do you pull in the same direction when one wants to follow Christ and the other one wants to be in charge? It makes for some tough pulling like we saw with Phil and Drew. Number two. Will God's revelation of himself transform you? Second half of verse 14. Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? One of the word pictures that God uses to talk about his gospel and Jesus Christ is that of light. In fact, Paul earlier in chapter 4, verse 6, for God, who said, let light shine on us, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. 
In contrast, those who don't believe or are blinded, if you will, are in the dark, who don't respond. It says in verse 6, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light gospel that is displayed that is, displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God I don't think this blindness is due to lack of information like they've never heard that's true I think for some folks but I think for a lot of folks they've heard and they just don't like it it's the condition of their heart it's what pastor Neil was talking about this Christmas season out of John 3 verse 19 20 this is the verdict the light has come into the world. Jesus has come into the world. The gospel has come into the world. But people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for the fear of that their deeds will be exposed. The light of the gospel says so much. It says so much. First of all, it reveals our own heart. Our rebellion against a holy God. It reveals that uh, we are heading towards His just judgment unless something changes. And number three, that there's nothing that you or I can do. That's the bad news of the good news. But the good news is that God has not left us. And He sent His Son. Amazing. To live this life in a way that you or I could not live it. In perfect obedience to the Father. To pay a price going to the cross as God and man. To pay our price for our salvation. A price that you and I couldn't pay. And then to defeat a foe in death by rising from the dead. That's what God has done for us. Nobody comes to God saying, Hey God, you're pretty lucky to have me on your team. I'm a good guy. I'm a good girl. No, we're all, we're all condemned by our sin. There's, there's no us and they. It's just, have you responded to Jesus or not? Because that's the thing. It's true. It's out there. It's what God has done. It's what He's offering. It's what He's provided. But you need to receive it. You need to respond by faith. It's what the Gospel of John says, to as many as received him, even to those who believe in his name, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. Or you can deny it. You can put it at arm's length and say, no, I don't, I don't want that, because I, I kind of like what I'm doing. Jordan Peterson, the uh, YouTube philosopher and what have you, if, if you've ever paid attention to it, has said this, as he's, even in his own journey, I think, seeking God, seeking Christ, he's interviewed many an atheist. And in that pursuit, that honest conversation, it's like, so if you were convinced that God actually did exist, would you follow him? And the answer is no. For so many of them, I don't want to believe that he exists. Because that means that means I've got to respond to his revelation and I don't want to. I kind of like being in charge. This is our first problem. 
When a Christ follower is hitched to somebody who wants to ignore, even deny that God, what God has revealed, both of you are falling down different paths, and that's a place for conflict. Number three, will you live for what is priceless or for what is worthless? Verse 15, what harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Now, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I'm taking my best guess. But it is a transliteration of a, of a Hebrew word, which basically means worthlessness. It's worthless. It's used of people. It's used of things that are not worth following. It also is a connotation to the God of the forest, or the, the God of you know, worshiping creation. So are we partnering with somebody who's living for the eternal priceless value of what Christ has brought in his kingdom and even given us the participation in his ministry of reconciliation? Or are we living for this world, which is passing away, which is falling apart, which is fleeting? Just visiting with a sister beforehand, <laughs> just brought in a, a mechanic to fix her, her furnace and no longer, 45 minutes later, it broke down again. I had to call it back, and I just said, I'm so sorry, sister. It's the problem of living in this broken world. And ultimately, as far as eternity is concerned, at the end of the day, it will be worthless. And I'm not saying that creation is not good. It is beautiful. God made it, but it is sin-sick. It is, it is affected by the mar of the fall of mankind in sin. And it groans. Creation groans for it to be redeemed and remade. And God has promised a new heaven and a new earth. God is not anti-materialism. He just wants to breathe his perfection into it. He's going to bring a new heaven and a new earth. And for those of us who put our faith in Christ, one day he's going to give us a glorious, redeemed, eternal healthy body that will never decline, never decay, never get sick, and all things will be made new. That is where we're heading. And I don't know about you, but I'm excited about that. I'm excited about that. That this is not all there is. That this is not all there is. But here's the problem. When you're yoked to somebody who's, you know, living only for this life, what they value, what they treasure is just here. And they will fight violently for it. They'll resist violently. And make no mistake, Christ lives, calls us to live for something greater than just this existence. In Mark chapter 8, 34 through 30, uh, 37, Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, this existence, yet forfeit their soul? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? There's a major conflict when someone wants to live for something that is priceless and eternal, and somebody wants to live for this passing sin sick. Number four, to whom will you turn? To whom will you turn to? Or, the, or what does a believer have in common 
with an unbeliever? Well, if I answer that honestly, quite a bit. An unbeliever and a believer have quite a bit in common. We all need food. We all need shelter. We all need care. We all need protection. We all need somebody to encourage us. We all need community. We all need love. That's what we have in common with unbelievers. And that's why sometimes love transpires between believers and unbelievers. But the question is, at the end of the day, who will you turn to for those things? Whom will we turn to for those things? For the believer, it is God, it is Christ, from whom we receive every good and perfect gift. For the unbeliever, it is self, or the things of this world. Good friend of mine, follower of Christ, he'd entered into a business relationship in the medical field with a gentleman who, well, at least he went to church. That was the hope of my friend, that he would fear God. And my friend was very eager to start this new practice to help people and to make a living. And his partner wanted to make a living also, a very good living, by overprescribing drugs, by overbilling insurance. And in the midst of this, my friend could tell he and his partner were not on the same page. And it, it ate him up. And eventually his solution was to take out a huge loan at his own peril and buy his partner out so that he wouldn't be yoked with this business partner anymore. When things are difficult, who do we look to? The living God, to trust Him to meet us, or ourselves and others around us. You know, this week in the men's study, we were talking about the temptation that came to Christ when Satan said, if you were the Son of God, and he was, turn these stones to bread. Now Jesus could have done that. He had been fasting and not drinking for 40 days, so he was hungry. But he also realizes that he comes as the second Adam. And what did the first Adam do? The first Adam looked to himself to provide for himself, to give himself wisdom. He knows he's coming as the second Adam to live in perfect obedience to the Father. And so his response is not to meet his need himself, but to look to the Father. For man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. If our Lord Jesus found himself needing to be in dependence upon the Father, how much more are you and me? To whom will we look when things get hard, when things get difficult? If there's not an agreement on whom you're looking to to sustain life, then there will be a conflict with that partner, and conflict will ensue. Last of all, how do you please God? How do you please God? Verse 16. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Now there are two comments I want to, I want to or observations I want to make about this. 
this particular thing. Number one, idols are lifeless things made by mankind that at the end of the day cannot deliver what they're being hoped to do. Whereas our God is the living God. Not a dead God, not an idea, the living God. who invites us to come into his throne room of grace and to seek him in our time of need. He wants to be intimately involved with your life and my life. And if things are a little crazy, maybe we shouldn't beat ourselves up and saying, boy, I should have planned better. Maybe we should say, you know what? This is exactly where God wants to meet me. The second thing, though, is just the difference of worship. When pagans worshipped an idol, they would enter into what was called opening the mouth of God. Opening the mouth of God. That means they would do the religious duty, whatever that was, whether it was a sacrifice or you know, whatever religious pilgrimage they would go upon, to please the God. Now, God, I've, I have scratched your back, now scratch my back. Make me fertile. Make me prosperous. Give me good fortune. It's a quid pro quo relationship. I follow you for what you can give me. That's how to please the God. For the believer, you and I are the temples of the living God. God comes to live within us. The living God comes to dwell among us people in his tabernacle or his temple that's how he did it in the old testament and with the new covenant he comes to dwell in you and in me to make his residence in us and not only that to live his life in us and through us to do in us what we cannot do ourselves i've quoted this passage many times from this pulpit and i probably will again but galatians 2 20 the Apostle Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who and delivered himself up for me. Or as he says in Galatians 5.16, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. How to please God is to say, Lord Jesus, let me cooperate with you. Do in me what I cannot do myself through your Holy Spirit. Bring forth a fruit of love, of joy, of peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I don't know about you, but when I'm ticked off and mad, that's not what's coming out of me and out of my flesh. But if I let the Holy Spirit have His way, suddenly God is doing in me what I cannot do myself. That's how you please God. You see, some of us might find ourselves in partnership with people who are very religious. They're very religious. But the way they follow God is kind of a quid pro quo. Hey, I go to 
church and I, you know, do these things and I, what have you, but I expect God to, to put out, to meet me, right? Again, it's a quid pro quo. Whereas the follower of Christ says, I, I, Jesus, here I am. Have your way in me. Let me move with your Holy Spirit. Because I am the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that's why God is so insistent upon even sexual fidelity and sexual purity. Because we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He wants us to be a pure uh, temple for Him. Different approaches in following the living God might bring conflict. Those who seek to follow God for what He can give them versus those who seek to say, Lord, come have your way in me. And the applications are numerous, people. We can start with those who have married unbelievers. Don't get discouraged. As long as there's breath in the, in the lungs, God has room to work and change hearts. Again, I just say it's a bad form of evangelism. God is not, is not obligated to save your spouse. But in His grace, He may do so. You know, those of you who are single and looking for a spouse, I would say don't settle for the least common denominator because the person has made a profession of faith. Make sure they're following in the same direction. Many, a brother or sister who would like to go into full-time ministry or the mission field might have gotten sidetracked because of who they ended up marrying because they said, well, that's not my call. You have to be equally yoked going in the same direction. High schoolers, I have something to say to you. Who you are interested in has to go beyond that he or she is cute. Okay? This is the question you need to ask. Because you don't know where that relationship is going. And then engage them in a Christ-honoring way in all purity. Middle schoolers, i got something to say to you. Who are your friends? Who you hang out with is what you, who you're going to end up being like. Show me who your friends are and I'll show you what you'll probably be like in five years. Who are you partnering with in that? Business partners. Money can't be the, can't be the, the last arbitrator. The almighty dollar cannot rule in your business practices. If Christ is not part of it, you maybe need to think about a different partnership. Those of us who are fellow employees, are we getting connected in gossip about people in the office? Are we laughing at off-color jokes? Are we demeaning fellow employees that we think are the lepers of the uh, social food chain at work? And those of us, and, and it's getting more and more difficult, folks. So I'm not saying this isn't, this isn't uh, this is easy. I'm just saying you're going to have to pay attention. Your employer, are they asking you to do something un- are they asking you to cook the books along the way? Or are they asking you to do something that this world says is right, but God says is wrong? To affirm something that you know that God says is an abomination. Or is your job just saying, 
This needs to be your first priority. It cannot be. It cannot be. It has to be Christ. And then, just as far as our hobbies and getting involved in that, you know, I enjoy some, some hobbies, but I also know that those things can become idols if I let them become too important. Whether that's fishing, whether that's sports, whether that's boating, whatever it is, those are entertainment. They are amusement. But folks, they are not going to last. So let's be careful what we connect ourselves with. And here's what I want to say also. God is not commanding us to go off and become our own little Christian commune and, and ignore the whole world. We have to be salt and light. In fact, Paul says that in, in uh, chapter 5 of his first letter, verse 10. But we also have to ask the question, who is influencing whom more? Who is having an impact? Is it my partnerships, I'm having an impact for Christ, or are they impacting me? Because the Apostle Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We have to ask that question. Are our connections and commitments dragging us away, making us more conformed to this world than we are like Christ? As we finish this up, verse 16. As God has said, I will live in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out of them and be separate, says the Lord. No unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. You know what's interesting is I read these promises, these, these quotes. They're all from the Old Testament, but different snapshots. The first one is from Leviticus 26.12. I will live with them and walk among them and be their God and they will be my people. That is a place where God rescues his people out of an idolatrous society in Egypt. He says, you're going to be my particular people. And then he goes on, verse 17, Therefore, come out of them and be separate, says the Lord. No unclean, unclean thing, and I will receive you. That is from a second exodus. Because God's people were idolatrous. They're in Babylon, and he sends them away. And then he calls them back to themselves. It's easy for us as believers sometimes to enter into that idolatry. But the promise here is what he promised to David. And I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters. There's this promise of intimacy, of being his sons and his daughters. You see, at the end of the day, we have to remember that a holy God shows us that we, he wants us to be holy his. That's what he's trying to communicate to us in this passage. And remember, all of God's promises, even from the Old Testament, are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. So God has done everything he can to secure our salvation, and the promised blessing for those who are in Christ. But that does not preclude us or excuse us from evaluating the influences and partnerships that we have on an earthly level, whether they are drawing us to Christ or drawing us away. He's asking us to be discerning and maybe to pare away some of those things. And I can't tell you what they are. I 
you need to go before the living God and ask His Holy Spirit to examine your heart and your mind. But that's what the Lord has for us today. We're going to enter into a time celebrating the Lord's Supper here. And I want to say this, if you're a visitor, we practice what we call open communion. That means if you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and He's your Lord and Savior, you're welcome at this table. It's not my table, it's not the table of the Bring Community Church. It is His table, and He welcomes you here to be a part of it. If you've not yet put your faith in Christ, we're so glad you're here. I just encourage you to pass the elements on down the road, because if you were to take, you would be saying something that's not true of you yet. But I pray that you would find life in Christ and even just witnessing what we are celebrating here today. Kids also, uh, here's the rule. If mom and dad know that you put your faith in Christ and they say, yes, it's good. If it's not, that's a discussion to have a little bit later. But we always come to this table thoughtful because as I said earlier, none of us comes to Christ worthy. He's the one who makes us worthy. And we oftentimes need to um, repent. We need to examine ourselves and see where we've gotten out of sorts with him. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner would be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man, a woman ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment upon himself. And that is why many among you are weak and sick and number have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. And when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So for a few minutes now, Colleen is going to play softly in the background and I'm just going to ask you to say, Lord, show me where I'm out of sorts with you. Show me where I have sinned. Show me where I need to ask forgiveness. And he says in his word, in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sin, he is faithful. He is just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And then we'll continue on in this sacred remembrance of what God did to buy us back to himself. So for a few minutes here, let's just ask the Lord to serve.